them around here. You know? Isn't that awesome, huh? <laughs> this week, uh, I was doing some research for my sermon, and I, I ran across this quote. It came from Gloria Vanderbilt all the way back in 2004, I think it was. And, and here's what she said. She said, every American has the right to make a fool of himself if he wants to, but too many folks are abusing the privilege. And I think uh, almost 20 years later, that's probably even more true now than it was back then, right? Or maybe it just seems like it because now we have, you know, we have a social media and it's just the fools just make more fools of themselves out in public maybe than they used to do, right? But there are a lot of people out there that are foolish, and, and that's what we're talking about in this whole series that we're looking at here in the book of Proverbs. We're talking about how to foolproof our lives. And it seems to me that, that, that a lot of lives are, are like that, that the people are foolish, that they're abusing the privilege. A lot of you know that um, for about, I don't know, maybe the past 20, a little, maybe a little longer than that, years, I've been officiating um, basketball and volleyball at all different levels, from very little kids all the way up to the college level. And, and sometimes I've done a really good job, and other times I've definitely made some mistakes as an official. And sometimes I made those mistakes because I didn't know the rules real well. Sometimes I was just in the wrong place. Maybe sometimes I just used poor judgment. But what I've always tried to do as an official is to make sure that when I make a mistake once, that I won't go and make that same mistake over and over and over again. And um, at the same time, though, I notice a lot of other officials out there, and the, the thing is that you work with them and you notice they're making the same mistakes that they made last year and two years ago and five years ago, and they never get any better because uh, maybe a couple of reasons. One, maybe they just don't listen when other people try to help them out and to point out the things that they're doing wrong. And some of them, frankly, just don't care because they're just in it for the money and they, don't, they get paid the same whether they do a good job or they don't do a good job. So I guess maybe that's part of it. And it seems to me that that's kind of a indicative of the culture that we live in today. There's a lot of people that just don't want to be corrected. They don't want to listen to someone else. Tell them that they've done something wrong so that they can improve their lives so that they won't make those same mistakes over and over. Another quote I, I ran into this week that I think really kind of summarizes the whole message this morning is from a guy named um, Stephen Den. I don't even know who this guy is. I tried to find him. I, I'm not even sure who he is. I'm not sure whether the quote even really came from him. I can't verify that. But it was so good that I wanted to use it anyway. And here's, here's what the quote says. It says, you can never make the same mistake twice because the second time you make it, it's not a mistake. It's a choice. It's true, isn't it? In a lot of cases, that's really the truth. And, and that's what we'll be talking about this morning as we look in the book of Proverbs still. As we go through this, we're going to see that one of the ways that we have to foolproof our lives is make sure that we don't keep making those same mistakes over and over, that we don't keep engaging in the same sins over and, and over and over again. Now, for the last several weeks, I guess this will be the third week in this series, we've been in the book of Proverbs. And, and we're calling this foolproof because we're looking at some ways that we can foolproof our life. And, and we began two weeks ago, back in chapter 1, we looked at the first seven verses, and we particularly focused on verse 7 there because verse 7, we said, it's kind of like the theme statement for the entire book. And there we learned that if I want to foolproof my life, I have to live in a way 
that I acknowledge that God is God and I am not. And we said that the biblical definition of a fool is someone who chooses not to follow God's ways. Then last week we spent some time in the the middle part of chapter 1, and we looked at some really practical ways for us to deal with negative peer pressure. And if you missed that for some reason, I'd encourage you to go back and and listen to that or read that because I think there's some really practical teaching for all of us there as we face peer pressure. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to go through the end of chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading this morning in in verse 20, and you can go ahead and follow along as I read through the end of the chapter. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, who would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It's a really interesting passage here. This is the first of a bunch of times in the book of Proverbs when we find, where we find that wisdom is personified. It means it kind of takes on the form of a person here who speaks to the, to the son of Solomon here as he's, as he's doling out this wisdom. And that might seem kind of strange to us, right, this whole idea of some abstract like wisdom being personified. But think about it. We actually do the same thing in our own culture, don't we? For instance, somebody might say, well, he was overtaken by greed or she was blinded by love. Well, greed and love, they're concepts that are not physical people, but we kind of use that to help us to understand more about the concept, and we're going to find that that the same thing happens here as as we go throughout the book of Proverbs, and wisdom is personified. She's actually personified as a woman, which is really interesting to me. We talked a little bit about this on Monday morning. Why why a woman? Why is wisdom personified as a woman? There's a few reasons. I think the first one is just has to do with the form of of the nouns and the verbs that are used here. Most of you in English, you know, we don't, our nouns and verbs, they don't usually have any kind of uh, masculine or, or feminine gender assigned to them, right? Like a house is just a house. I mean, it's not a she house or a he house. It's a house. A dog is just a dog. But in Hebrew and in Greek and a lot of other languages, like those of you who know Spanish, know that, that, that nouns can be either masculine or feminine. They have a gender assigned to them. And so, for instance, in Spanish, casa 
which means house, it's always going to be a feminine noun. Whether a man lives in that house, no matter how it's decorated, if it's all foo-foo or if there's a man cave there, it's still a casa, right? It's still feminine. Or a dog is perro, and that's masculine. It's always going to be masculine, whether the dog is a female or a male. And we don't have that in English. Well, in Hebrew, and interestingly in Greek as well, the words for wisdom and folly, they are both feminine nouns. And so that's part of the reason maybe he, he identifies wisdom, and later he's going to contrast that with lady folly. They're both identified as women. The other, the other reason here is you'll notice here it says that she cries out in the street that she's a loud mouth, and so that therefore means it has to be a woman, right? No, it's just kidding on that last one. Believe, don't throw anything at me. But, but throughout the book, I think one of the reasons that, that um, it's also a woman, because remember, Solomon's speaking here to his son. And he's warning his son about the, the allure of, of an evil woman. And we know that typically as men, we're, we're more prone to sin based on the things that we see with our eyes. Like we could be attracted to an attractive woman to do something that we shouldn't do. And so Solomon kind of uses this picture all throughout the book of Proverbs to warn against going after folly because folly always looks really good on the outside, but in the end, it brings us to disaster. And that's really the point that's being made here. So he identifies um, wisdom here and personifies her as a woman. So with that in mind, we're ready to kind of deal with the the big idea that I want us to take away from the message here today, and here it is. I develop wisdom when I embrace the blessing of reproof. I develop wisdom when I embrace the blessing of reproof. And I know some of you are probably already beginning to be a little uncomfortable here because you're thinking, what do you mean you want me to embrace reproof You might not even know exactly what reproof is, but you know it's something that's a little bit painful, right? Something that might be a little uncomfortable. Something that might not be real pleasurable, and you're beginning to think, well, how is that going to be a blessing in my life? Part of that, understanding that, is to understand what we mean by the word reproof. And the Hebrew word that's that's translated reproof, and, and this is a concept we see all throughout the book of Hebrews. We see it three times here in this passage. If you look carefully, we're going to see it all throughout the book of Proverbs, the, the noun reproof and the verb reproof. The, the word originally came from a council of elders who would sit at the city gate. And as people had conflicts, they would come to these elders, and these elders would render a decision. And the purpose of the decision was to make things right. Whatever was needed to make things right, that's what the decision was about. So this idea of reproof, it was more about getting things right. It was more about promoting restoration and reconciliation and and restitution than it was about really making someone feel bad about themselves or to to pull someone down. And so, so really, when you think about that, here's how I would define reproof the way it's used in the Bible. It's exposing sin. I think we all understand that, but here's why. For the purpose of maintaining God's truth in a fallen world. That's our goal. With reproof is we always want to maintain God's truth in a fallen world. This world that we live in, it it has its own truth. Everyone thinks that they can just, you know, cling to their own truth, and that's just not right. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. So what we want to do with reproof is we want to make sure we use it in a way that maintains that truth in a fallen world. And we do it in a way, as we're going to see this morning, that's good for, for people. And when it comes to reproof, there are two ways that we can respond to that reproof. And the way that we respond to it is going to determine whether it's a blessing or a curse. On one hand, there's those who will embrace, which I'm encouraging us to do, embrace reproof and are wise. And it tells us here that they find life. It says at the end of this passage that they dwell securely. And then there are those who would choose to despise reproof, who would choose to reject it. And the Bible says that they're fools and that they're careening towards disaster. There's a there's some warnings in here that say, look, if you want to choose not to listen to reproof, then, then you're, going to, you're going to go off the edge of the cliff here. You're going to have to live with the consequences of the choice not to do that. So reproof, if we respond to it properly, it actually gives life, and it's a blessing, and that's why we want to embrace it. The Apostle Paul basically said this exact same thing in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he uses a little different language, but he's basically saying the same thing. Here's, here's what he writes. He says, for godly grief, and I would suggest to you that godly grief is, is taking and responding to reproof in the right way, that godly grief, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So if you don't want to listen to reproof, where does it lead? It leads to death. So that's why we need to embrace reproof in our life. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, there's two ways that you need to embrace reproof in your life. I think the first one's pretty obvious. When, some, when there's reproof that's brought into our lives, we need to receive it in a way that is beneficial to us a way that's going to help us to be wise and not be fools. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But there's a second way, and this one I think is actually much harder for most of us, and that is that within the body of Christ, we are called to bring reproof to other people when it's needed. And a lot of us aren't very comfortable with that, and I think part of it is because we don't really know how to do it. So I want to address both of those things this morning and make this really practical. So let's look first, how do I receive reproof? How do I make sure I receive it in a way that is a blessing to me and not a curse? Number one thing I have to do is listen. I have to listen. And if you read this passage, you see that here. Lady Wisdom says the reason that you're going off on these foolish ways, the reason that you're going to fall off the edge of the cliff is because you're not listening to me. But the good news is when you get to verse 30 at the end, we're promised that if we do listen, there's blessing in that, that, we'll, that, as I said, we'll dwell securely. So we need to listen. And not all of us are very good at listening. The verb that's translated listen here in this passage, the very same Hebrew word that we saw back in verse 8 of chapter 1, it was translated here back then. And if you were here last week, hopefully you remember that that word means to listen with the intent of obeying what I hear. A lot of times in the Old Testament, it's actually translated obey because that's what it means. And so the idea here is that I'm going to listen carefully to someone else with the idea of, of actually doing something about it. And the problem with most of us is we're not very good at listening, especially when someone brings reproof into our life. What are we doing? When someone comes into our life, they bring some criticism and they say, hey, look, I'm really concerned about this area of your life. What's the first thing we do? We start 
in our mind, we start making up excuses. We start thinking about how we're going to excuse that, and we quit listening to what the other person is actually saying. We have to listen. Fortunately, someone gave me some really good advice early on in my life. They said, hey, look, Pat, when someone brings criticism into your life, sometimes it may not even be justified, but listen carefully to what they have to say. Because there's almost always something, there's almost almost always some grain of truth in what they're saying that you can learn from in your life. And the same thing is true with reproof. We need to listen carefully to what the other person is saying. And only after we've done that should we move on to the second step, and that is to evaluate. The problem is we sometimes get these things out of order. Somebody starts to speak, and we jump right to the evaluation part. We need to evaluate what's said. And I think there's some some ways that that we can do that. We need to, first thing we need to do is pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. The Holy Spirit will do that. That's part of his role in our life. And this doesn't have to be some big, long, elaborate prayer. It can be just a little prayer that you shoot out silently as you're listening to the other person. Lord, just help me to understand the truth of this situation. Second thing you need to evaluate is, are the facts correct? Because the other person could have the facts wrong. I mean, that's very possible, right? I mean, let's say somebody comes to me and says, Hey, Pat, you know, I was driving last night by this place where you shouldn't be, and I saw your car out in front of there. <laughs> you know you were at home last night, or, or maybe you'd lent your car to someone else, and they were the ones that were there. But you know the facts aren't right, so you need to make sure the facts are correct and do what you can to make sure that the other person has the facts correct. If they have the facts wrong, then they're probably going to get the rest of it wrong. And then the most important step, once you've done that, is you have to evaluate what they're saying in light of God's Word, right? It may very well be that they they just have some personal preference in their life or some personal conviction, and and your life isn't matching up with that. And they say, hey, Pat, you know, that's not the way I would do it, but you're not really violating the Scriptures. So it might not even be a sin that you need to deal with. Now, I will say this. Even if it's not a sin in my life, Maybe I'm going to act on that anyway just to preserve my relationship with that other person if I've done something that might offend them. I might do that to protect unity within the body. I might do that. But I need to evaluate. And then when I've done that, the third thing is I have to act. I need to do something about it. If I'm going to live my life based on the fear of the Lord, that means that when, when somebody brings some kind of sin to light in my life, I have to act on it in some way. I have to do something about it. And there could be a hundred different things I need to do, and I can't possibly give you a list of all of them, but here's some basic categories that, that, that we need to be aware of. The first thing is to confess. I mean, that's, that's always appropriate, right? When I sin, I need to confess. If um, anything I do, I need to confess it to God. And, and, and the good thing, God's promised that if I have faith in Jesus, he'll, for, he'll forgive my sin. He'll cleanse me from unrighteousness. But sometimes I've also done something to someone else that I need to go to them and, and I need to say, look, I, I confess, I sinned against you. I did this. This was wrong. Will you forgive me? And so the first thing we have to do almost always is confess. Second thing we have to do is to repent. And we've talked about repentance a lot. I'm not going to dwell here a long time. But the word repent, the verb just means to literally to make an about face, to make a U-turn, to turn around. So when it comes to my sin, the first thing I have to do is I have to make a U-turn in my mind about what I think about that sin. I have to acknowledge that it really is sin. 
before God. And then I have to take some actions to make sure that I don't keep engaging that sin over and over and over again to where it becomes a lifestyle. The Bible's really clear that, that repentance almost always requires some kind of action to go along with it. Don't just take my word for it. Here's what Jesus said about repentance. He said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. How do you bear fruit? You have to take some kind of action that's consistent with your repentance. Paul, when he stood before King Agrippa in the book of Acts, he also made this basically the same point in Acts chapter 26. He said, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea that they should repent and turn to God and then do what? Perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance, genuine repentance always requires some kind of action. And usually it's some kind of action that I'm going to take to make sure that that sin doesn't become a lifestyle. It might be finding someone to hold me accountable. It might mean that I got to, as we talked about last week, maybe I just got to stay out of some situations where I might be tempted sometimes. Maybe I have to give up something even that I love doing because it always puts me in a, in a compromising place or in a place where I know I'm going to be tempted. But I have to act. And then the last, the last part of the action is sometimes I'm going to have to make restitution. Not always, but if I've harmed someone in some way, the Bible's really clear, I need to make it right. This week, I woke up uh, one morning, I think it was maybe Tuesday morning, I guess, and I have this email from Oro Valley Water. And it says, you, you've used excess water. You probably have a leak. And it, it had to do with our vacation rental, which we don't live in all the time. There were no guests there, so I'm like, well, maybe we have a leak. So I run over to the house, and I, I'm expecting to, like, get there, and there's water pouring out, you know, the front door. And I walk in, and the whole house is dry, and I'm going, this is really strange. So I walk out into the backyard because I figure maybe it's an irrigation leak, and our swimming pool is empty. I'm like, how did that happen? There's no water anywhere. There's no puddles. Well, it turns out that there was a, a pool service company that was supposed to come and empty the pool next door to us. And they had gotten the address wrong. So we now have an empty swimming pool. So... Luckily, from our door, our uh, ring doorbell, we were able to see the name on the guy's shirt because he'd come to the door, apparently, and uh, figured out. So I got a hold of the owner. The owner says, man, I'm so sorry. Yep, we went to the wrong address. Said, when you fill the pool up, let me know. We'll come over and get it started back up again. We'll put all the chemicals in it. I'll pay you for the extra water to fill the pool up again. Now, I don't know if this guy's a Christian, but that's, that's how we ought to act if we need to make restitution. We have to just admit it and make it right, and that's what this guy did, and sometimes we have to do that. So that's kind of on the receiving end. How do we receive reproof with those things? But we also need to understand how we can give reproof, how we can provide reproof to others. And the Bible is really clear that we actually have an obligation to do that as, as believers. And so... In the, in the right circumstances. So how do I do that? I, I'm not real comfortable with this. I'll admit it. I don't think any of us are. So I want to give you some practical ways so that maybe you can get a little better at doing this. The first thing is I have to check my life and my motives. I have to check my own life and my motives. 
I have to know why. Why do I want to do this? Do I want to do it to just make myself feel good by putting the other person down, or am I genuinely caring about them? Let me just share with you two passages. I'm not even going to make any comments on these, <coughs> excuse me, because I think they're pretty self-explanatory. The first passage comes from the words of Jesus himself. And he said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, that's reproof, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Or this one comes from Galatians chapter 6, the words of Paul. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's all I'm going to say about that. Just check your own life and your own motives. The next thing, same thing we have to do when we're receiving. We have to evaluate. We have to Again, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit and pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into truth. And then we need to understand what the facts are again. We need to make sure we have the facts straight. Let's say somebody comes to me and says, Hey, Pat, did you know that so-and-so was doing this? You know what I'm going to do first thing? I'm going to ask them, Well, how do you know that? Did you see that yourself? Oh, no, I heard it from someone else. Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to make sure that I have the facts straight before I proceed any, any further. I'm going to do my very best at least to make sure that I, that I do that, that I have the facts straight. The second thing that I, that I need to do after I have the facts straight is I need to evaluate it again in light of what God's Word has to say. Again, I want to make sure this is not just my own personal prejudices speaking, my own personal convictions, my own preferences. I want to make sure that it really is a violation of the Scriptures. I ought to be able to go to the Bible and point to a specific passage or a specific verse that really helps me to identify that this is in fact, that it is in fact a sin that I need to rebuke the person for. Third thing I need to do, then once I've done that and evaluated, I've ascertained it's a sin, is I need to pray need to pray about the situation, and I specifically want to pray for wisdom. In just another month or so, we're going to begin a new sermon series on the book of James. And in James chapter 1, we're going to run run across this passage in verse 5 that I think is very applicable here. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So you want to ask for wisdom. Before you go to this person, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Next thing, once you've done all that now, maybe you've determined it's not really a sin, you're done, but if you determine it's a sin, then what you have to do is you have to go speak the truth in love to the other person. You have to speak the truth in love. And that might be a little different than what you think it is. This whole idea comes from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And in, in, uh, in that letter, he writes this about speaking the truth in love. He says, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So, so the purpose of speaking the truth in love is to help people to grow up and to become mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ. But exactly how do we do that? How do we, how do we speak the truth in love? I have a, a friend that I went to high school with, and, 
And from everything I know about the guy, he seems to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. But lately, he's been posting some stuff on social media that basically are saying some, something to this, um, to this extent. They're basically saying, hey, look, just love your neighbor and don't worry about pointing out any of the sins in their life. Just go ahead and accept all the sin in their life. And I want to tell you, I don't think that's speaking the truth in love. Read the, read the middle of this chapter. What does it say? When someone doesn't listen to wisdom, when they refuse to listen to reproof, what happens to them? Their life goes careening off a cliff somewhere. They're going to suffer serious consequences here. And is that the loving thing to do, is to just not warn the person that that's to come? Now, I'm going to give you a couple of caveats here. It's not our job to judge those who are outside the body of Christ. That's God's that's God's prerogative. That's very true. So I'm not going to win a whole lot of people into the kingdom of God by, by scaring them into the kingdom, right, with their sins. I'm probably better off trying to love them into the kingdom. But that being said, there are opportunities that we have from time to time to, to share what the Scriptures have to say with those who are unsaved, with those who are not Christians yet. And when we have that opportunity, we need to take advantage of it. We need to do it with gentleness, as the Bible says. We need to do it with respect. We're not there to judge them, but we, it is the loving thing to let them know what their sin's going to do. And that's especially true within the body of Christ. When I see a brother or sister who's sinning, the most loving thing I can do to them is to go to them and bring this reproof because I don't want them living there because I know that's not what's best for them. Finally, I need to encourage and I need to exhort that other person. I don't just leave them there. I don't just say, hey, told you about the sin. See you later. At a, at a minimum, I'm going to pray for that other person. At a minimum, I'm going to pray for that other person. But I may also need to, to hold them accountable. I may need to help them find someone else who's gone through the same thing that can help them through that situation. Or maybe I've gone through it and I can walk through it with them. I don't just leave them on their own. I want to exhort them. I want to encourage them. Remember, the whole purpose of reproof is what? It's restoration. We want to restore that person's relationship with God. And that's why church is so important, why we gather together so we can encourage and exhort each other. So I hope you see why I said earlier that I develop wisdom when I embrace, when I embrace the blessing of reproof. So I want to ask you two questions this morning as we close. Number one, has someone brought, recently brought reproof into your life in some way? And if so, how have you responded to it? And then second, are you aware of sin in a brother or sister's life that God could use you to go and to bring that reproof to their life? And if either of those apply to you, I encourage you, go ahead and take whatever action that you need to, to put into practice the things that we've learned this morning. I originally hurt my left knee back in college. Got hit by a car while I was riding a bicycle, and I've had all kinds of issues with that knee ever since. And, and so, not to be four or five years ago, I mean, I got to where the pain in that knee was beginning to become unbearable. 
I had to, if I wanted to go to the gym and work out or if I wanted to go hike or do anything, I had this big old brace that Gerald got me that I could put on my knee just so I could do it. I still had all kinds of pain there. And eventually, I had to make a decision, and I decided to go ahead and have a knee replacement done on that knee. And I got to tell you, the first, the first two months after that, that operation, I was thinking, what have I done? Because any of you who have had that done, you know how hard the rehab is. I mean, I experienced some pain like I've never experienced in my life before. They told me to make sure you took pain pills before you went to physical therapy. I don't know what good those pain pills did because it, it hurt. <laughs> I was screaming. It was sore. But you know what? Today, I'm glad that I did that. I have a little stiffness in my knee, but I can live with that. I don't have any pain. I can do all the things that I want to do. And I think reproof is a lot like that. Sometimes it can be so painful, so painful on the front end. But if we'll apply the principles that we learned today and let God use that to change our lives, then the results are well worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reproving us when we need that done in our life. Thank you that you love us enough to discipline us and to bring people in our lives who can draw us back to you when we've fallen away. And, Father, I want to pray this morning for anyone here who has fallen away from you. I pray that you would bring someone into their life, maybe even someone in this room, who would be willing to reprove them, to point out their sin in their life so that they could be restored in that relationship with you and others. Father, I pray for those of us who are receiving reproof. Pray that we'd apply the principles today. Pray that we wouldn't just push it away or ignore it or anything like that, but that we would embrace it. We would use that to help us so that we don't just keep making the same mistakes over and over in life. So, Father, would you do your work in each one of our lives? Whatever needs to be done there, would you do that for our good and your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name.